Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. Uh, on this episode of Deep in Scripture, I'm uh, our guest today is T.L. Putnam. Hello, T.L. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I forget where you're joining me from. I am joining you from the shores of the Puget Sound, just north of Seattle. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I would love to be there. <laughs> I would love to have you here. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get out there. I don't get out that that coast very often. I'm usually within the boundaries of Ohio most of my life. But uh, yeah. but it's great to talk to you, TL, and to join you on our episode. Maybe you, were, you joined me on the journey home not all that long ago, but why don't you just remind the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I grew up in the United Methodist tradition. I um, came into the church in 2011 along with my wife together. Uh, shortly after that, I worked at the uh, Diocese of Tulsa as the Director of Marriage, Family Life, and Respect Life. I did that for a number of years. In the process of that, I got wrangled into doing Catholic radio. Uh, I have a program called Outside the Walls that airs uh, across the state of Oklahoma and in central Iowa. Uh, you can find that at OutsideTheWalls.com. That's a weekly interview format program where we talk about the implications of our belief on our daily lives. And, uh, and then now I work... Uh, up in Seattle as a director of faith formation and evangelization for a parish on the north side. Well, that's great, T.L. I think you're, what you've been doing in your, uh, your life uh, is a great uh, uh, witness and a model to converts using their gifts when they come into the church. And in some ways, uh, opportunities you never anticipated, um, t- right. you know, like radio, <laughs> right. which is also, it's true for me too, because I don't, I didn't come into this with any radio background, but it's a it's great to have that opportunity, especially now with the internet. It allows us to do this program a little more flexibly because uh, though I try to keep this podcast within a half an hour, I don't think I've accomplished it yet. But but uh, TL, great to have you here. Just a reminder to the audience, we're doing these Deep in Scripture episodes uh, right now in the theme of memorable verses. I've invited a guest to join me to share a scripture that's so important to them that they've memorized it, and because of their memorization, it's with them all the time. But also it's encouragement uh, for you to memorize that verse, to know it, because there's a reason. And our format will be, I'll, I'll come to the program with a verse that I'm sharing today that's important to me. My guest doesn't know what my verse is. And after I've talked about it for a while— and the format of this program, I need to do that. Without, It's not going to start as a discussion. I'm going to take the floor and give the reasons why. And then once I got all that spilled out, I'm going to invite TL to join me to talk about the scripture that I've shared. And after we've done that for a while, then TL, I'll invite you to share your verse, which I don't know what you're bringing to the table. I'll give you the floor to talk about that. And then after a moment, you invite me to join you and we'll talk for a while. And then the goal at the end of this is we'll bring the two verses together and see how together these verses combine to help us walk uh, with our Lord Jesus Christ in the church. Does that sound fair, TL? Sounds great. All right. Well, the verse I'm sharing today um, is one that's been important to me all my life, and I have a feeling it's a verse that every single listener has heard. It's extremely common. We've sung it in tunes all of our life. Uh, 
I know that we've used it as an antiphon in the Psalms, on Mass, on Sundays, so it's very familiar. Uh, and what I'm going to do, though, in this time, though it's a familiar verse and maybe taken very simply, that I believe there's a much deeper importance to this verse, especially today. And so I'm going to share something which, I'm telling you, TL, we could spend three or four or five hours on. It probably deserves that. I can't yeah. give it that. In fact, right. I, threw this, I threw this together this morning in uh, a little bit of time. So it probably could be done with much uh, better depth with a scholar or an academic. Or, uh, but anyway, I, I want to go through what I think is extremely important. Now, here's the scripture. And TL, I know you will know this text. It's from Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Now, we've all heard that verse. We've probably sung it. Uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We know the verse. It's in the midst of about the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And in that sense... It's important that we shouldn't take that verse out of its context, but still, I think to know the true context of that verse, we need a bigger picture. Because what I'm proposing is that this verse that our Lord gave us is far more essential and important to us understanding and living the gospel, especially today, than maybe we at first recognize. And to see that, we have to recognize that the theme of the entire Bible, from beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation, is about the battle of kingdoms. There's a kingdom of this world, and there's a kingdom of God. And the bottom line is, which do you choose? And that there are times when because of the battle, and because of our own weakness due to sin, is that we have to come out of the kingdom of the world and seek first his kingdom. And again, as I mentioned, this could be a three or four hour discussion, but I'm going to quickly give an overview just to see how important this is to the entire theme of Scripture. Go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 3. When it says that, therefore, the Lord sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man in the east of Eden. So, in other words, in the beginning, we see because of sin that man is cast out of paradise, in essence, out of the kingdom of God into the world to fight the battle. And we see then in Matthew, excuse me, Genesis 4, after the first murder, It says that at this time, man began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so in the very beginning, we see mankind driven by conscience is being drawn to seek the kingdom. In the midst of the kingdom of the world, there we see the start of seeking the kingdom. Genesis 6, it says that God saw that the entire earth had become corrupt, filled with violence. So what does he do? He calls Noah to build an ark, to come out. And so, in essence, it's not that Noah and his family uh, return to paradise. No, the kingdom of God in this world gets a restart. 
And so Noah and his sons are now to have a, a fresh start to seek the kingdom, though they are still in the kingdom of the world. And we know that from the story, it doesn't go well. Because the very next, just a couple chapters later in Genesis 11, the whole world again, and this must represent thousand years or so, the whole world under one language is so united, they want to raise a tower to proclaim the kingdom of man. And at this point, God doesn't do another flood. Instead, he separates the people so they cannot be united in their one search for the kingdom of man. And in the midst of this, we see the opportunity for men and women to seek the kingdom of God, breaking from that the power of culture, if you will. The one-voice culture would have been too difficult to battle against, and so we have the division of languages. And then in, in Genesis, the next chapter, Genesis 12, we have Abram. And what does he do? He calls Abram to come out of, to come out of his world and to seek the kingdom. And he's promised a covenant in which in his seed, in his line, will be these people of God whose call will be always to seek God as king and to serve God as king in the midst of a world of nations that are only interested in the God of this world or the gods they make for themselves. Genesis 19, we see Lot in the midst of Sodom. And Sodom is an interesting story because it wasn't like these people woke up one morning and the whole city was corrupt. That took time. People at one beginning probably were fine folk, but over time they became corrupt and their leaders became corrupt and pretty soon the whole city became corrupt. It kind of reminds us what's happening in our world in terms of certain lifestyles and morals that are becoming politically instituted and we can't even step against them. Well, that's where Lot found himself and he was called for he and his Lot to come out of that corruption and seek the kingdom of God. In Exodus, the Israel is in Egypt. What happens? God raises up Moses and the other leaders to pull Israel out of that kingdom so they can worship God in the wilderness. So they're being called out of the kingdom of the world to seek the kingdom of God. The end of Joshua. They've they've arrived in the promised land. They haven't returned to paradise, but they're in the promised land. And what does Joshua say? Who will you serve? Whose kingdom are you going to be in? The kingdom of the surrounding nations? Or are you going to serve God? Of course, he says, as for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. First Samuel, <clears throat> after all this time in the promised land, they've been served by judges. It says in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's very old. His sons are going to judge, but his sons did not walk in the ways of God. And so the elders of Israel gather up and say, Behold, you are old. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like the other nations. And that's when God says, Samuel, he's not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king. And so we see the beginning of this long history in which this battle between choosing the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And and as in Genesis, when it wasn't God's perfect plan for man to leave leave paradise, it wasn't God's perfect plan that they would seek a human king. 
but God relented and used that for the salvation of his people. I'm going to, you know, the, the rest of the history of the Old Testament, up and down, David, Solomon, up and down in exile, brought back all the way to the end. Our Lord comes, our Lord gives parables of the kingdom, teaches about seeking the kingdom, teaches people about following God. And then I'm going to jump to the chase in John chapter 19 when our Lord has been betrayed, he's been arrested, he's been tried. Pilate goes before the people and he says, Behold your king. And they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify. And Pilate says to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar. And of course, the next verse is he was led out to be crucified. And so the whole Testament is about a choosing of kingdoms. And all the way up to the crucifixion of Christ, we see that even the leadership of Jerusalem has chosen Caesar. And so we have the death and the resurrection, and then the crowning of our Lord Jesus as king in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the entire New Testament is about choosing the, who will be king. There's so many verses. Romans 8, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, in other words, that he's king, and he is king of our life, and believe in your heart that God raised him to the dead, you'll be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, it says the only way you can proclaim Jesus is Lord, king, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And I could go on and on. The point is, our Lord, and I'm going to get back to the verse, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours. Sometimes I've heard people use this verse to emphasize, well, if I put his kingdom first, then everything else will be fine. That that's really what this is about. I get priorities. Sure, I want all these things in my life and this stuff and a career and success, but I keep my focus on him and his righteousness, and all this stuff will be mine as well. Mm-hmm. The underlying issue is it's about a surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord, and we continue to live in a battle of kingdoms. And just as in the Old Testament, the same has been true for the last 2,000 years. The danger is that over a period of time, we become blind to the ways we have surrendered to the kingdom of man so that even our worship and the way we think of ourselves as Christians is in a way tainted because we have compromised to the kingdom of man. And the, the bottom line of this is to cut through it all. Who is Lord? Who is Lord? It's his kingdom in the midst of all these other voices. That's the point. That was the point of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the point of the gospel. All right, your thoughts, T.L. You know, so it's interesting. I, I was told I had to pick a verse. And uh, <laughs> and so I've got all of these. Uh, I, I offered different options and, and uh, that were passages, and I know yeah. you can't talk about those. Well, so as you're talking here, I'm going to bring in one of those passages because it seems to fit. And that's uh, in the book of Colossians chapter three. There's this long passage about what we're supposed to uh, put to death in ourselves, Mm 
and what we're supposed to put on. Yes. Uh, and and it, it, I, I come to this because it, it, there at the end, you talked about um, the, the compromise that we give, these little uh, concessions that we give to the kingdom of the world. Yep. Uh, and you, if you look at even there in, in the gospel where the chief priests say we have no king but Caesar, they, they weren't specifically choosing Caesar at that moment as much as they were trying to do some self-preservation. <laughs> if we choose this as our king, then Caesar's going to come down hard on us. Uh, you know, even earlier in that same passage, you have one of the chief priests say, it's better that one die for the sake of the people uh, because they knew that if they promoted this person as king and if he continued to raise up trouble like they perceived him doing, uh, that Caesar was going to come down hard on them and then they were going to lose their power and they were also going to really, in their minds, lose their safety. So they chose their own safety and their own comfort over uh, really the kingdom of God. It wasn't a, a, an intentional choice. It was a choice of self-preservation. And we see that again in the passage you chose. Right before that, he's saying, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink uh, or wear because when we're concerned about our own self-preservation, that's when we make these concessions to the kingdom of the world and we, we stay away from uh, really full surrender. So here in, in Colossians 3, you have, um, and this is not my verse, I'm respond, yeah, <laughs> responding to yours. Uh, he, he says, put to death, uh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, without, which is idolatry. Uh, and then he goes on and it, in this version in front of me, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Another translation says, clothe yourselves then uh, with compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, and so forth. And uh, what I like about this uh, idea of clothing ourselves or putting this thing on is it's the recognition that it's not natural, right? When I wake up in the morning, uh, and I get out of the shower, I'm in my natural state. And I realize that, you know, I should probably clothe myself. I should put on something unnatural for the sake of uh, my well-being and the well-being of those around me. Uh, and so we do that same thing spiritually as we wake up and we do an examination of conscience and we look at ourselves and we say, wow, uh, I'm not very compassionate or kind or, or meek today. I need to clothe myself with these gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit so that I can be supernatural. I can reflect and share in the divine life of God for the sake of the world around me. And in that way, um, all of these things are added unto us, right? It's, yep. it's through my submission to God, not that I'm going to be monetarily taken care of necessarily, uh, but that rather... Um, my spirit is going to be cared for and and I am going to reflect more fully who it is God made me to be. The the scriptures that you referenced from Colossians chapter 3, uh, put to death, that verse was verse 5 and put on then was verse 12. It's 12. If I jump up, it's interesting, let me jump up to verse 1 where Paul, the introduction to that, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, that that's almost like uh, Paul was doing his own commentary on Matthew 6. Right. Uh, that it's, it, it, and, you know, the, the uh, it's also interesting that we're doing this taping today 
on the Feast of St. James. And as you said, those rulers, Jewish leaders in, in Israel had a choice to make. And they decided to say, well, we have no king but Caesar because it, it prevented them from, uh, uh, the, the, from danger. Today, we, we've, we celebrate the feast day of a martyr in the church, James, the brother of John, one of the apostles of our Lord, who did not compromise. Uh, he said, no, Jesus is Lord. And, of course, when you read the stories of the martyrs, whether it's Polycarp or any of the early ones, the bottom line was, who's Lord? Who's king? And Polycarp said, well, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And uh, the reason I want to emphasize this, which you brought out too, uh, T.L., thank you very wonderfully, and, and that is for the, the problem, I think, is that we, are, we become so blinded to the ways in which we have acclimated to culture that pretty soon things that we should have put off, we don't, and we accept, and we compromise like those religious leaders to the point where we don't realize to what extent we are indeed proclaiming this world as the king of our life because we've, we've, we've co- so become accepting of things in this culture that are just, we should take a stand against because they're wrong, but we want to get along. Yeah. So pretty soon. And we still think, oh, first in my life is Jesus, but we've let all this other stuff compromise not only our heart and mind, but our witness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this, uh, this really cutting through all, just as you've pointed out, uh, putting to death those things. Uh, it's interesting, the list of things that he says put to death, so many of those things have been just accepted in our culture as normal. Yeah. You know, St. Alphonsus Liguori, in his work, The Love of God, says, the proud person relies on his strength and he falls. But the humble person who puts all his trust in God holds his ground and does not succumb no matter how severely he is tempted. And and I think that there really is this question of not whether we're going to serve Caesar or whether we're going to serve God, but who do we trust? Who do we rely on uh, for our own success? And and really for the chief priests, it wasn't Caesar that they were trusting in for their success. They thought that everything relied on them and their cunning and their ability to uh, to guide and direct the people. Uh, and I think that we often fall into that same thing. We're, we're not looking necessarily to Caesar, although there is some, certainly <laughs> some bowing to political pressure in the world. Uh, but rather we look to ourselves and we say, oh, if I don't handle this with my own wits and cunning and ability, then all of this is going to fall apart. And the truth is, is that's the most sure way to ensure that it's going to fall apart is when we rely on our own ability rather than, as, as it says in the book of Proverbs, acknowledging, Christ, acknowledging God in all of our ways and having him direct our paths. Yeah, uh, it just fascinates me as I tried to illustrate in the long list of verses. Sorry about all that, but, uh, that, this, <laughs> this, but that this idea of fighting the battle, seeking the kingdom, is 
the most common theme of Scripture from beginning to end. Even in Daniel, I will not bow down. I will not bow mm-hmm. down. You know, that's really the issue. And uh, all right, great, T.L. Let me uh, pass the baton over to you. What's your Scripture for the day? And, so the the one we came down to, and I think it's because it was the shortest of, of all of the <laughs> options I gave them, uh, is the one that, again, everyone is familiar with. We we have it emblazoned on, uh, you know, pretty art all over our homes. And it says, um, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a Philippians 4.19. And, you know, it ties in very closely in that kind of concept that you brought in in Matthew of, well, you know, if I just do this thing, then God's going to take care of all the rest and I'll be provided for. And it becomes really transactional in a lot of our minds that if I do this, then God must do this or will do this. So therefore, we're still calculating in our own uh, sufficiencies, like okay, all I have if I do if I have enough cunning, if I have enough will, then then I can manipulate the situation to end up getting what I want, which of course is completely against the the whole point of this scripture. Um, so, I grew up in, in a Methodist tradition, but it had a little bit of a charismatic background, and and of course, I was surrounded by those who uh, subscribe to the prosperity gospel, and and my church didn't, and I wasn't raised in that prosperity gospel that if you just have enough faith, God will give you what you want, or, you know, that that um, God doesn't want suffering, and, and if you just have enough faith, God will heal you of everything. That was kind of floating around, but we didn't hold to that, and yet some of that kind of creeps in uh, to, to our own consciousness, not so much in, in the demonstrative ways that they have uh, in the prosperity gospel. But in this idea that, um, uh, oh, you know, if I if I pray hard enough, if I pray the right prayers, if I submit just right, then I'm going to be taken care of. And one of the things that I mentioned on uh, the Journey Home episode that I was on recently is that uh, when we came into the Catholic Church, we experienced a period of unemployment, and I had this. Um, this thought, well, you know, God, you said in your word that you'd supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. You said in your word that uh, never I've seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And so you promised God, so I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> uh, and, and ultimately we were provided for and our needs, not our wants, but our needs were met. But it was it was a stretching and a, and a humbling time. Uh, Recently, we were going through a similar time, and this is what uh, came to me as I was kind of meditating and trying to wrap my head around what does it mean for God to be good, specifically when we don't feel it, experience it, or see it? What does it mean for God to provide for our needs when we feel abandoned or destitute? And in the midst of that, I just get this picture of the saints and and the struggle that they went through. the martyrdom, as you mentioned, and, you know, I looked at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, whose husband failed in business and then died and left her with all of her children. Uh, And here God says to me, I don't love you any more than I loved my saints. (laughs) I'm like, oh, they went through some hard things there. So what then does it mean for God to provide for all of our needs? Uh, And and it was... uh, more of that surrender and humility 
And then through that, yes, we were taken care of, but there was less this sense of uh, a, a determined outcome. If I just do this, then I can manipulate the situation or, or manage the situation in such a way to get what I ultimately need. There was this this uh, Job-like um, surrender. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Uh, though though I can't see any provision coming, though we're completely we feel completely abandoned, I still am going to declare that that God is good and that He is faithful, and I'm going to re-examine what my definition of that means. Uh, I'm not going to look at my situation and say, oh, well, look here, God isn't faithful. Rather, I'm going to say, God's faithfulness looks differently than I expect it to, and God is providing for me in ways that I am not anticipating or expecting, so I need to begin to look for those things. Uh, and th- through that period of time, this is what I came to, and, it, and it, it's really the, the background of that verse is, Right before Paul says this in Philippians 4.19, he's talking to the Philippians about their care for him. Uh, He says, I rejoice, this is uh, verse 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but had no opportunity. Uh, Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Uh, In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he goes on to talk about how they cared for him financially. And he says, I'm grateful for that, not for my own benefit, but because of what it's going to do for you, right? because you have given without consideration, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. There's this, um, this sense of once you have abandoned yourself to the kingdom of God, as you were talking about earlier, and are no longer concerned for uh, uh, your own cunning and strength making your way through life, in that moment, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Uh, St. Leo the Great says, whoever gives alms should do so with detachment and joy. For the less he keeps back for himself, the greater will be his gain. And he says that in the 10th Lenten sermon. Uh, St. John Chrysostom says, almsgiving having, having been introduced not for the sake of the receivers, but for the sake of the givers. For the latter are they which make the greatest gain. And then lastly, St. John Chrysostom says, the rich exist for the sake of the poor. And the poor exist for the salvation of the rich. Both the poor person and the rich person in this situation have to completely abandon themselves to the will of God, whatever that means for them. And in that abandonment to the will of God, uh, God will take care of the details, both for the rich person and for the poor. Oh, awesome, T.L. Uh, it amazes me to, to realize that when Paul wrote this letter, he was in chains, right? right. I mean, he's in prison. Uh, and so all these things he's saying about he's uh, willing to be content in any circumstance and have this great optimistic view that my God will simply supply every need of yours according to his riches. He's in chains. He's in prison. And, uh, you know, I 
was reminded of also of there was a, a Jesuit priest during the French Revolution. His name was Father Grow, G-R-O-U, and his books are available online. Uh, uh, he wrote a number of books. He was had to escape France during the the French Revolution. He ended up in England, and and he lived there for the rest of his life in a monastery in the south of England. He wrote a number of books, and his books were very popular. Uh, they're out of print. I I think Sophia Press may have it. But the point is, I, rem- I wish I had it in front of me. But there was one thing he said, and he was talking about at that time, so two hundred or so years ago, about particularly non-Catholic Christians who were always focused on salvation. What must I do to be saved? What must I believe to be saved? And their whole life was about what do I do? How do I live what, to be saved? And his comment was the danger of that thinking is that can in the end become very self-centered and narcissistic. It's all about me. and What do I have to do to be saved? And he said, what's more important and I, again, I wish I had it in front of me. He basically says three things. You love God. Mm-hmm. You love your neighbor. You grow in humility. And you leave salvation to him. Right. In other words, you trust totally in him. And whether it's for riches, wealth, you trust totally in him. All these other things, you trust in him. Because if you fully believe in God and believe he's merciful and just, and you do everything by grace to serve him. Leave salvation in his hands. Leave your wealth and your future and your, and your prosperity in his hands. Because he knows, as what you've said here, he'll supply every need. Right. That word need <laughs> is the key word, right? Right. It, it's not what you want. It's what you need. Yeah. And that's a weird trust. <clears throat> so what about these two verses? Do they fit together, my friend? Well, you know, I, I just, <laughs> I have this idea that they might, there might be a correlation. <laughs> well, go ahead. You know, <laughs> first, first of all, I think they're both misunderstood in the same way. We, mm-hmm. we expect that both of them are going to be about our, uh, our material comfort. And, it's really specifically with yours. It's really interesting because it's saying right before that, "Don't worry about your material <laughs> comfort," yeah. and we're like, "Oh, so yeah, if I if I trust in God, then my material comfort will be taken care of." It's like, no, 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 go back, go back. Don't worry about your material comfort. That's that's start the step one of this equation, uh, and, and so to look at it with the idea of abandonment, I think probably yeah. the key in all of this. Uh, and and I, this, I think, is also one of the keys to the Christian life, is total abandonment to the will of God, right? If I am if if I'm concerned uh, with the outcome, as Father Gross said, uh, then I'm not truly abandoned to God, yeah. right? I'm I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about uh, how am I going to to make this work out? And the truth of the matter is, and the saints teach us this so well. Um, humility is the way that we are going to attain anything in life. It's the way we're going to atta- attain any any reward in heaven is by 
saying, you know, I really can't do this on my own. I must submit to the will of God. I can't figure out the machinations that I would have to go through to achieve success here. I'm going to turn this over completely to the will of God. I, we see this in um, St. Teresa of Avila in her uh, work, The Way of Perfection, St. Benedict in his rule. All of these people are telling us, step one, before anything else, step one as we pursue perfection in Christ uh, is humility, is to be the last and not the first. TL, thank you so much. It's really amazing once again in this program that our two verses fit together like hand and glove. I mean, they really do. And in a way, your scriptures were the expression of Paul making his own commentary on the very words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, I know that as a Protestant, often we didn't know what to do with the writings of Christ. Because from my standpoint, I was a Calvinist, and so I was too much into Paul, and I didn't listen much to the Sermon on the Mount. When the truth is that everything that Paul and James and John and Peter and Jude wrote in the New Testament were all a commentary, in many ways, on the Sermon on the Mount, is, is living this out. Given what Christ has said, how do we live this out? And so the verse you chose is a way— of Paul in the midst of change to say, this is how you live it out. In, right. in, the, in the battle you go forward, this is what it means. And it's not about seeking wealth or prosperity or about privilege or position, nor is it worrying about the end, it's seeking God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just a powerful message. T.L., thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. It's been a great pleasure. Marcus, it's been a pleasure to be with you again. Once again, as we close, tell the folk if they want to find out more about your radio program, where should they go? Outsidethewalls.com. Just think of, of the beautiful church in Rome, St. Paul, Outside the Walls, outsidethewalls.com. All right. Thanks, TL. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope our discussion has been an encouragement to you. And uh, in case you haven't done, please check out all the other resources that are available on our website, chnetwork.org. God bless you. Be with you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.